this, there was this one uh, family doctor who came into the clinic screaming, how dare you fast my patient? I sent my patient here for diabetic kidney disease, not for diabetes management. But six months later, this doctor came in with flowers, apologizing and asking if he could become a patient himself for his borderline <laughs> diabetes. And he said it just took seeing that change, that transformation in that one patient to make him open-minded. Body, mind, empowerment. Get stronger, faster, smarter, quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven. Everything the body needs. Control your mind. Welcome to the Body Mind Empowerment Podcast. I'm your host, Seamland, and our guest today is Megan Ramos. Megan works with Dr. Jason Pong, and she's the Intensive Dietary Management Program Director. She helps her patients with understanding the dietary principles and guidelines of fasting regimes. Megan, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me on. Yeah, uh, how, let's maybe let's start off like how did you get involved with uh, helping people with fasting and how did you get involved with uh, working with uh, Dr. Fung? Uh, so Jason and I have worked together since I was 15. So that's officially oh. 20 years this summer. Uh, <laughs> I've gotten older. Congratulations. Uh, Jason, thanks. He's a kidney doctor and I'm a kidney researcher. That's our background. Mm-hmm. So I started uh, when I was a kid because I had a family interest in kidney disease, learning more about it. It's a condition that's uh, plagued my family a little bit. And I had the opportunity to do some research and I just really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the team of nephrologists and I enjoyed all of the kidney patients very much. Um, And there was a lot of research going on in the clinic that was focusing on disease prevention, which is where my true interest lied. You know, let's prevent the kidney disease from happening in the first place. Let's not try to fix it once it's happened. And it was pretty evident that once the kidney damage was there, there wasn't any going back. Um, So I, it was where I wanted to be. So I just stuck around. (laughs) And uh, in my um, my mid twenties, I started to get really disheartened because it really didn't matter when we detected the kidney disease. The big research project I was working on was early detection of diabetic kidney disease. But it didn't really matter. If the person had diabetes, the diabetes would just continue to get worse and worse and worse over time. So detecting the kidney damage earlier was just finding out that you're going to have kidney failure earlier on. Like There was no benefit. You couldn't stop that unless you could stop the diabetes. So there's sort of two parallel stories going on at the same time. I was um, becoming really disheartened with work. My, my goal was to always, you know, try to help people through preventative medicine. Um, and at my mid-20s, I almost gave up and went to law school. And during my time while I was studying um, for my LSATs, so the law school admissions test, I decided, okay, Megan, you've got a family history of kidney damage, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's disease. Like, you need to get your health together. You need to stop eating like a university student. And you need to start eating like an adult. So I started following the Canadian Food Guide, eating, uh, never skipping meals, because I, in hindsight, I realized I always stayed skinny, because um, I always skipped meals, and I actually fasted a tremendous amount in my youth, um, just because I was never hungry in the morning, so I never ate breakfast. I used to fight with my parents to death on that. Um, but I wasn't healthy either, even though I was skinny. I had fatty liver and PCOS, because I eat terrible foods, but I was never overweight. So in my mid-20s, I decided to get it together, uh, start listening to all of the rules and regulations and authorities on food and nutrition, and I became morbidly obese. So (laughs) uh, that was a true testament to how terrible these guidelines are. And with that weight gain came the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, which at that point was obviously my biggest fear because I was just watching it kill all these patients I loved, and so much so that it was sending me in a whole different career path. Hmm. It was really devastating. Jason simultaneously was going through his own questioning about our guidelines. He was getting frustrated too. All he was doing was watching these people die. So like me, he was he was going through the same questioning, you know, why, you know, why am I I'm in medicine to make people better. I'm not. I'm watching them get sick. Hmm. And why is diabetes such a huge issue now? Why is everybody obese now? What is it about it? And he had been doing some research into food guidelines and recommending lower carb diets to his patients, but it wasn't it wasn't helping too much. 
the low carb back then, it was very controversial, not understood at all. Even for someone like me, when he talked to me about going low carb, I'm like, I, all I know how to do is eat carbs. And I've been terrified of fat my whole life. My uncle, who was like my best buddy, died when I was nine from his third heart attack. He was 36. So I was plagued with all of these thoughts of how terrible dietary fat was. Um, so it was really tough for me mentally, emotionally, and just the know-how to switch my diet around. And I was still really busy. You, work's crazy. Um, and fast food was convenient. Uh, and it's easy even when you're just buying a roasted chicken and a salad from a supermarket. It's not the most ideal meal, but I thought I was being healthy. Uh, but anyways, Jason had started doing some research into fasting. Um, the, a friend of his had done some fasting for spiritual reasons and had seen some health improvements as well. And Toronto, where we're located, is the most multiculturally diverse city in the entire world. And we have a tremendous number of people who participate in Ramadan every year. So if you're not familiar with Ramadan, uh, for the people who are listening, it's a period of 30 days where people fast from sunrise to sunset, and they don't even drink water. And but once the sun sets, then they they have a feast and they hydrate and then they go to bed and in the morning they wake up before the sun rises and they do the same thing. So for 30 days they're fasting and a lot of the patients that we'd see in the clinic, their blood sugars would improve, their blood pressures would improve, they would lose weight, they'd have to have their medications all slashed in half. So simultaneously we had just gone through Ramadan and Jason had how to adjust many of his patients' medications. And then he had this friend fast for spiritual reasons and get these great health benefits. So Jason, who comes from a bit more of a religious background than I do, he was well aware that you know fasting was a part of his religion and other religions, um, but was there something more to it than for spirituality and you know connection to oneself and the environment? So he started looking into it to see you know, what was the therapeutic properties. Obviously, people fasted you know, throughout history as part of every major religion for therapeutic reasons as well. And he started doing research into it and then started putting the connections together with that and insulin resistance. And he encouraged me to try fasting. Now he had approached uh, our clinic director, medical director about fasting with some patients and all of the other nephrologists thought it was nutty, right? Like to tell a diabetic patient who's been told traditionally to eat several times a day to not eat at all for several days. So Jason said, you're not a patient. Why don't you give it a try? And after doing some of the reading that he sent me, it all made sense. Like I felt like just the biggest goofball in the entire world for not questioning my professors in, in school. Because it, you know, when you think about it, our current guidelines, meal timing, it never makes sense. There's no research saying that we need to eat three times a day. Nice. Throughout human history, that was never a thing. So I started fasting and within six months, like all my disease went away, diabetes, obesity, fatty liver, PCOS, and our clinic director and other nephrologists were so inspired by my success and our patients were so inspired too after seeing the transformation in me. They were eager to fast. They were eager to give it a try and that's how we started. Uh, so we had our very first clinic day on June 5th, uh, 2012. Hmm. Wow, yeah, it's quite a quite a quite a fascinating story, and uh, it really comes to show how uh, distant people are from their you know natural ways of eating, so to say. That you you mentioned that in the past you were quite uh, skipping meals you know, voluntarily and without even noticing, and whenever you actually started eating more frequently, you gained a bunch of weight. So, like it's it's it it would be like in the nature, it's actually normal for humans to you know go through periods of fasting and. Like even children, they don't really like have that many frequent snacks unless like parents like force feed them. So <laughs> it's it's yeah. quite a quite of a natural thing. It's uh, it's just super crazy when you when you actually think about it. Humans evolved to much terrible climate than you know we have, and right. so I live in Canada, and I'm telling you, nothing has been growing in Canada for like the last month, um, unless you know somehow life can survive under a whole bunch of ice, because that's what is on my in my backyard. Um, obviously, people went through extreme periods of fasting. 
right. and it just doesn't make sense. And there's literally no research. Any anything that talks about breakfast has always been paid for by the breakfast food industry, mm. the cereal food industry. So it just never made sense. It's been such a bizarre phenomenon to you know have this transformation in our diets where we're just eating all of the time. It just it really doesn't make sense. Right, right, yeah. So uh, by now you've been uh, doing or you've been prescribing a fasting-focused lifestyle or fasting-focused medicine for a few years. Like, what's been the feedback from uh, both the kind of mainstream uh, medical advice and like the other doctors? So at first I thought we were nuts, uh, absolutely crazy several years ago. Um, but a lot of people are just getting frustrated. And I think especially people of my generation and slightly older than me, like right now I've watched my grandmother follow the guidelines and it just kill her or die. I've watched my parents follow the guidelines and just seen them make them more and more sick. I have experience with me following them and developing disease too. Obviously, there's something wrong. And I think there's a ton of people out there that want answers. They want to try something different. You know, when you've got someone who's watched two generations above them, you know, suffer miserably from metabolic syndrome and do everything right, like all of the patients, they come in, they'd be gaining weight, their blood sugars would be worse, they'd cry because they think we wouldn't believe them that they weren't trying. And I knew they were trying. I've watched it with my family. I've watched my mom diet so much and my father so much and it just never worked. And then always end up gaining weight or even more weight. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And I think we're sort of see like we've seen it now. We've seen the damage of what sugar does to the body. We've seen the damage of what eating late does to the body. And people are just looking for answers themselves. They no longer feel that they can trust the medical community. So we had a lot of negative feedback from the medical community. And funny, the, the doctors who supported us the most locally were the ones who um, then themselves either fasted for religious reasons and realized, you know, it's not the, not the worst thing in the world to do. But other than that, people thought we were nuts. But I started seeing patients because patients didn't care. They wanted to come to the clinic. They wanted to try this. And, uh, you know, I saw this, there was this one uh, family doctor who came into the clinic screaming, how dare you fast my patient? I sent my patient here for diabetic kidney disease, not for diabetes management. But six months later, this doctor came in with flowers, apologizing and asking if he could become a patient himself for his borderline <laughs> diabetes. And he said it just took seeing that change, that transformation in that one patient to make him open-minded. So I, I think that a lot of the credit for making us accepted as a medical group uh, and fasting as an actual therapeutic treatment now, because nowadays it's one of the most popularly Googled searches. Um, I was in uh, the United States last year for New Year's and on New Year's Day, my mother-in-law called me into her, her TV room, her family room and said, Megan, every channel, every morning show is talking about fasting being the diet of the year. Um, and I really credit that also the people who just decided to try something out of the box and them inspiring their doctors to actually go out there, pick up a book, like one of, one of Jason's books, like the obesity code and become open-minded to learning about something different. Yeah, it is true. Like, uh, like raising awareness about it is quite a, the critical part and like breaking old dogmas because yeah, at first, uh, fasting may seem somewhat, you know, dangerous and somewhat like unwanted, uh, but but in reality, it's actually like quite opposite. And after you kind of open your paradigms to it, then it's actually really enjoyable and uh, actually something to you prefer over over anything else. Uh, but you mentioned like that it cures a lot of like diabetes symptoms and such. Um, can you maybe explain like how 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 does it work uh, in terms of uh, lowering insulin and lowering blood sugar? Well, when you eat a low-carb or ketogenic diet, you prevent your body from, from producing more insulin, which is great. But if you have insulin resistance itself, where there's actually damage from these toxic levels of insulin occurring over time, that insulin resistance itself is going to drive your insulin levels back up, regardless of you uh, not increasing your insulin levels through your diet. So a lot of people come to our program after having done low carb or keto, which I think are great. That's how I live. That's exactly the diet 
that I follow. Um, so it's a great diet, but it, sometimes it's just not enough because if you have that insulin resistance, the insulin resistance is going to keep driving the insulin levels back up. So that's going to further perpetuate the, the diabetes from continuing to become progressive. It's going to cause weight gain. It's going to prevent weight loss at the very little. So it's really problematic. So you have to actually target that insulin resistance. And this is where fasting is just so important. Fasting really alters the body's thermostat for insulin because you are being extreme for a period of time. It's like you're suffocating it for a period of time and you're breaking through that barrier that really allows your body to fight that insulin resistance. You break through the insulin resistance by fasting because you're going for a sustained period of time, 24, 36, 42 hours or longer. Those are therapeutic fasting regimens where you can actually really force your body to have your insulin levels be so low. Anytime you eat anything, your body does produce some insulin, protein, fat, it does produce some insulin. But when you abstain from eating altogether, your body's just producing the little amount that it needs to survive otherwise for other bodily functions. And you're not producing anything extra. So you're really keeping that level very, very, very low. And by doing that, you're actually able to break through the cycle of insulin resistance at certain parts uh, or certain durations of time of fasting. 16, 18 hours of fasting really isn't long enough in someone who has metabolic syndrome to do that. You really, the more damaged a person is or the more insulin resistance that they have, the longer you have to go. So we typically find that 36 hours is the best intermittent fasting regimen for people who do have diabetes and well we can get improvement doing you know 16 18 hours of fasting 24 hours of fasting we still get similar results to people who do a ketogenic diet it's just not enough then you're still eating every day a couple times a day that's still raising your insulin levels enough to become problematic when you have that much damage from having toxic insulin levels for so long so doing the longer the longer fast, so the 36-hour fast two or three times a week is just enough. It's enough duration of time to really force your insulin levels down to start breaking that cycle of insulin resistance so that insulin level is not going to go up despite following a low-carb or ketogenic diet. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, a lot of people who do a low-carb diet, they still may be surprised that their blood sugar or insulin is still elevated. And it's actually quite normal. And like you said, like even fats and proteins, they do like spike blood sugar and insulin to a certain extent. So fasting is still like a really good, good way of uh, fixing the root cause uh, completely. Uh, but how fast have like some, some of your patients seen results in terms of like fixing their diabetes? It's really crazy. Um, it's everybody is so different and we just never really know how someone's going to respond. I could have two men with the same A1Cs and the same body composition come into the clinic and be on 110 units of insulin. And one of them goes home and starts fasting and starts cutting back on the bread and the rice and the potatoes that they're having. And uh, within two or three days, they're off of all 110 units of insulin. And within six months, they have an A1C of like 5.2 and it's just mind blowing. Um, or, you know, we have uh, the, his counterpart, almost the mirror image of, of patient one and patient two. And we do the fasting and their insulin levels come down really, really, really slowly over time. They have to maybe do some more aggressive uh, extended fast periodically. They have to follow a strict ketogenic diet. So I, I don't know if it's just because, you know, patient one who came up with it really easily was just put on insulin very prematurely. Um, and his body had a lot less damage despite them taking the same volume for the same duration of time. So we see uh, most, we see a lot of success with people in six months, six months getting to a normal A1C, six months coming off of all of their medications. Uh, but for people who tend to be a little, bodies tend to be a little bit more resistant at the start, we really tell them it's going to take about a year 
uh, to make sure that they come off their insulin and get that great A1C. And still, even after patients come off their medications and they get this amazing A1C that they, they're looking to target, 4.8, 5, um, they're still experiencing about high, higher morning blood sugar levels. So they we're still seeing a little bit of a dawn effect with them, despite them having great blood sugar levels for the rest of the day. And it's those blood sugars for the rest of the day that's giving them the fantastic A1C, but it's just their morning blood sugar level, the dawn effect that's still problematic. And that lingers on for about another six to 12 months. So I think that in, from what we've experienced over the last couple of years, I've worked with over 10,000 people, you know, personally now, uh, <laughs> the numbers have been retallied, um, and not all for diabetes, but the majority of them for diabetes. And I think it takes about two years to really see a full reversal. And of course, that's with someone who's doing it consistently. The, the biggest thing with fasting is that you need to do it consistently. And that's, it's really the be all and the end all. I was talking to one gentleman and he said, well, six months ago I fasted for eight days why aren't I not diabetic mm -hmm. and I'm like well what have you done in the last six months you've been diabetic for as long as I've been alive yeah, <laughs> exactly some time so just consistency is the biggest thing and I understand there's months I try to fast as much as I can in January and February and March because uh, like June July August are more social months and mm. travel and you yeah. you're eating a little bit more but just finding that balance throughout the year we find in our clinic that if people spend about 50% of the time in a fasted state and 50% of the time in a fed state whether you look at that from a week-to-week -week basis a month-to-month -month basis or just look at it over the course of the year Megan fasts a lot for three months in the winter but not a whole lot for three months in the summer so it balances out 50% of the time she's doing a lot of fasting and 50% of the time she's doing less fasting so it all sort of balances out and uh, having that balance is really important. Uh, and we find that to be the most, most successful approach is a sort of a 50-50 balance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Consistency is also like one of the most important factors of being successful in any, anything, whether that be diet or, or running a clinic or something like that. Uh, but you mentioned that the dawn effect, which is like a slightly elevated blood sugar in the morning. Uh, why does this happen and why is it like uh, quite common? Well, it happens because you're... you're liver is got a little bit of fat in it and in the morning time your liver doesn't want to have fat in it pretty much uh, because that impairs liver function most people feel uh, don't believe that their bodies do try to work in their favor but bodies your body does try to work in your favor so in the morning time your liver tries to do you a favor by getting rid of some of this gunk that's in the liver so you can burn it off throughout the day um, and so what happens before you wake up your body produces a bunch of hormones to get you up and get you started throughout the day I always talk to my patients I'm like it's like warm your body's trying to warm up your car before you drive it in the dead of winter you never want to drive a car on a cold engine your body just doesn't get up like that it's not a miracle so your body has to get things up and going um, for you and one of these things is to signal to the liver hey if you've got stuff in there let's squeeze it out and let's fuel people so uh, so they have fuel in the morning time if you think about it it makes sense because we never ate breakfast in the caveman days they didn't have caveman refrigerators or cupboards or caveman cereal uh, they had to wake up and go hunt and gather and all kinds of crazy treacherous stuff in crazy climates in a facet state so it's our body's way of trying to fuel us in the morning but when you're diabetic you you tend to store a lot of fat and a lot of sugar in your liver and it's really the liver that starts to experience the damage even before people are diagnosed with diabetes so diabetics typically have a lot more so even in myself you know my liver pumps out some sugar into my blood in the morning when i wake up but i'm no longer a diabetic my morning sugars look perfect but when you're diabetic, you've got a lot. So your liver tries to dump out more and your blood is already saturated with sugar as it is because you are diabetic. So you already have a higher level naturally um, as a result of your diabetes. Well, I guess not naturally, but as a result of your diabetes, and the liver dumps more on top of that because it's got plenty of it in it. And that's 
where your diabetes sort of originates from. So this is the problem. So it just takes time to make sure that you're healing your insulin resistance on a cellular level. You know, we've got lots and lots of cells within our body that fuel on glucose. We've abused it over the years. We've created a lot of damage. So as more and more parts of your body start to heal, that relationship between your body and insulin starts to heal, your cells and insulin start to heal, you'll start metabolizing that glucose that's available more easily. You know, when you're a diabetic and you dump out some sugar into your blood that's already got a little bit of sh more sugar in it, and then none of your cells are taking it up because they have insulin resistance, and your cells, your body can't get that glucose in it without the insulin opening up the cell to enable the the glucose to go into it but as you heal that then you know the insulin will be opening the the gateway for the glucose to get into the cells and the cells will take up all of that glucose so you won't see those morning blood sugar levels as you become more less and less diabetic until you fully reverse the diabetes so i think it just takes time to, to see healing on more of a cellular cellular level mm. Yeah, uh, the the dawn effect itself is that it's nothing to be actually you know, it's not that it's not that dangerous in a sense that even normal people experience it to a certain extent just because of like uh, the rise in cortisol as well in the morning. So yes. uh, it's it's like somewhat of a natural phenomenon. But yeah, in people with diabetes, it's simply more kind of pronounced and more more sharp and more more higher blood sugar. What would be like the uh, optimal ranges for blood glucose people should you know aim for? Are they like seeing some signs of pre-diabetes or if they already like have some like serious condition? This is a good question because it's definitely up for debate within the medical community of what are actually normal blood glucose levels. And you know, I find with myself and so many of the people that I started working with, you know, shortly after I reverse my diabetes on paper anyways every year we go through like a different sort of transformation like i see my blood sugar levels have calmed down from four which is around 70 uh milligrams per deciliter for picomoles per liter or four millimoles per liter um and i was like oh yes this is perfect <laughs> but the more um more insulin sensitive I think I still become over time as my body heals, my sugars are now sort of between 2.5 and 3.5 all of the time. And they might be four if I eat really late at night and wake up and check my sugars in the morning after a poor night's sleep. And so, and I'm seeing this a lot with people and there are people out there that have been following a ketogenic diet for a very long time for epilepsy or for um, inflammation reasons. I have a friend who's been doing it for over 15 years that I've met through the low carb community and her blood sugar levels are around two all of the time. And so it, it's really sort of, it's tough because what is sort of optimal, I mean, you've got Crafts version of optimal, but people were still following more of a more of a standard North American diet still, but cutting back on the sugars. Like, what is optimal is a really good question. With our office patients, I do try to get them sort of between about three point five and five uh, millimoles per liter, and so that's sort of where we like to target. So I, I think that's around sixty-five to ninety milligrams per deciliter for any people from the United States that might be listening. Yeah, yeah. I think also that uh, most of the kind of optimal ranges that are prescribed uh, at the moment, they're also also based upon like the Western diet, so to say, which by 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 its nature will uh, raise your blood sugar by default and have like higher levels of insulin. So on a, like a more lower carb diet, your you know optimal blood sugar ranges should be a little, little bit lower, and you're not yeah. even gonna experience like the symptoms of hyperglycemia or something like that, uh, based upon the like the normal ranges. So, for instance, yeah, if I if I were to have like a longer fast myself, then my blood sugar will also be, you know, you know, I don't know, three or two point five or something like that. But I don't feel any different. I don't feel tired, or I don't feel that I'm about to pass out. And you know, that's because of like the aspect of my body still producing ketones and runs and like fat instead of uh, blood sugar. If people are interested, so I was collaborating with Diet Doctor and, uh, and a great team over there from us. Uh, it was a collaboration of people who are actually doing this on a large scale clinically and seeing test results. So we're creating some doctor training materials on Diet Doctor. 
but he's made them available for everybody. So you don't have to be a doctor to access them. And one of the things that we did as our team, I was in Stockholm this summer, and one of the things that we've been working on is saying, okay, these are the traditional reference ranges for this blood test or that blood test, like glucose, like insulin, like C-peptides, um, which is a, uh, tells is a measure of two of how much insulin I guess your body is secreting. Um, so, but what we're seeing uh, in a clinic, like what appears to be more normal for someone who has been following a low carb or a ketogenic lifestyle and has reversed themselves of metabolic syndrome. So what is a normal urea level? What is a normal blood glucose level? What have we been seeing? I mean, Eric Westman's been doing this for, for longer than we have, um, 15 years, I think in uh, North Carolina. So, uh, He's, he was part of the contributing factor. Ted Nyman, he's got a great practice uh, in Seattle, Washington, uh, was part of it. I, myself, a can, fellow Canadian colleague in Quebec, Evelyn Boudreau-Roy, we're all sharing our insights into what are the lab results that we're actually seeing. So that's available up on Diet Doctor if people wanted to do some research for themselves. Mm, nice, nice. Yeah, like that's that's a good good resource for the like the public to actually get access to science, <laughs> which usually yeah. tends to get locked down in the castle and uh, gets behind uh, you know uh, the gate gatekeepers. But you you what about like other uh, measurements like hemoglobin A one C? How uh, what kind of ranges should they pay attention to most most yeah. people? So this is, this is still something that we are learning. I'll never forget when I first started uh, doing nephrology research when I was in my teens. Uh, one of the research projects I was on was to assess biopsy results. So um, typically they send someone for a kidney biopsy if they didn't understand why that person had kidney disease. And so I would get all these biopsy results from these 40-year-old, like young patients, um, and they didn't know why they had kidney disease. So, but the kidney biopsy would always show diabetic kidney damage. And I'd look at the lab work then, you know, well, how come they're not being able to diagnose this with the A1C? You know, that's what they, they use to, to be alerted that there's a problem and send someone for an oral glucose tolerance test to diagnose diabetes. So I said, okay, you know, I'm seeing all of these biopsy results from these 40, 45 year old young guys um, with this, at that point, idiopathic nephropathy. And so idiopathic means unknown origin, um, but the biopsy results come back diabetes, diabetes, diabetic damage. And when I looked at these people's lab test results, they weren't in the diabetic range, but they were like 5.7, 5.8, 5.9. So the diabetes, like it was just lurking there behind, you know, the borderline diabetic range, and it was causing such significant diabetic damage. So based on what we've seen clinically, we really try to get our patients to have an A1C under 5.5, between 4.5 and 5.5. It's really over that that we have some clinical data that starts to show, okay, the diabetes is the least causing damage to the kidneys. Or we see people with diabetic nerve damage, but they're in that like pre-diabetic range of like 5.7 or 5.8. They're not even in that borderline diabetic range. So I, I tell my patients, ideally, I'd like them between 4.5 and 5 or 5.2, much on the lower end of 5. But our initial goal is to get everyone to 5.5 or less. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah. Have you seen someone uh, with uh, like uh, chronically high levels of blood sugar from I don't know some chronic stress or or even like uh, excessive amounts of glucagon which tends to be also higher on a lower carb diet I've heard that you know uh, there's there are some syndromes or these def these uh, defects where glucagon simply stays elevated despite eating and that's simply gonna break down more liver glycogen and keeps on raising the person's blood sugar um, so sort of more of a stress and we see more stress induced uh, diabetes or high blood sugar levels from diabetes. Um, and so it's more cortisol people on steroids too. So someone taking prednisone mm -hmm. and we find that it's sort of it's hit or miss whether or not these people even get success from doing a low carb diet or ketogenic diet or fasting. Sometimes I can have a person who's taking 40 milligrams of prednisone a day and has a lot of stress in their life, but is being really mindful and trying to get good sleep, 
Uh, so having good sleep hygiene, is exercising as much as they can, is meditating. For them, we get some results. And, and for some people, they, it seems like they're trying everything and we don't have a whole lot of impact with diabetes. We haven't really run into any issues in the clinic so far with people with any, any sort of glucagon sort of related cases. It's mostly stress. I had this one patient and he would come into my exam room and go off about his stress in his life, his terrible son-in-law, his, you know, his other son-in-law, his son and his daughter, and just family stress. And then we talk about how that affects his blood sugar levels and that, you know, he needs to find ways of coping with stress. And we go through all of different behavioral techniques to do so, recommend cognitive behavioral therapy, um, and go through everything. And then five minutes later, I find him, after he leaves the exam room, find him, you know, complaining to one of the secretaries about his son-in-law and his son and his um, sort of perpetual stress. Uh, Cushing's disease, too, is another um, concern as well. Uh, so my mom actually had Cushing's disease. So she had a tumor in her adrenal gland, and this tumor caused her body to produce an insane amount of cortisol right. as a result. And so she became diabetic and on insulin right before they actually figured out what the problem was. So mm -hmm. she had surgery to remove the tumor, and actually they removed the whole adrenal gland. And she lost, uh, my mom's not even five feet tall, she's four foot ten. Four foot eleven, and she lost about sixty pounds in less than thirty days. Mm -hmm. Ended up in the hospital for such sudden weight loss, and her blood sugar levels dropped. She had to stop insulin and all diabetic medications immediately. And within three months of having that tumor removed, her A1C went from nine to like mid fives. Um, it was just really wild. Mm -hmm. So we see a lot of issues around cortisol more so than anything else. Mm, yeah, like stress is like some sort of a hidden killer that it doesn't matter how good your diet is or how how much you fast if you're still stressed out and you suffer from, you know, these other secret things that simply raise, keep your blood sugar elevated. But what, what about are there like any differences between men and women in terms of fasting? Should women fast differently or uh, how does it work there? Women and men definitely have a different journey, but women uh, can get the same results as men. I'm actually writing a book called Women and, or, or On Women and Fasting. I don't know if that will actually be the title, but based on all of the clinical stuff we've seen since there's no scientific data, but we've, we've definitely seen thousands of women. So what do we see at the different stages of life? So fasting has its different things for everybody. For a woman who's still menstruating, we do see that it um, makes the periods irregular for a few months, but then makes them very regular and improves all symptoms around menstruation after that. Mm. Um, and young women with PCOS who haven't had cycles in two years or three years start to have cycles within three months of fasting. It's mm. pretty incredible. And we see some women come out of menopause, temporary or even in the long term, um, who are older. Uh, so we see these strange things happening out with women at different ages, um, which are things that we, we can't really quantify <laughs> with men in terms of reproductive health. Um, women, we've even seen their hair color grow back. So for women who have let their hair color become gray, um, their natural blonde or brunette or redhead will start to grow in at their roots. So we see some really neat anti-aging things with women that uh, we're not able to sort of see with men like improvements in hormonal levels around menopause and young women with PCOS, which is really fantastic. It is a little bit more challenging though for women to lose weight um, than men because we are slightly more hormonally complicated. Uh, estrogen is a, is a big uh, roadblock for us that naturally cycles throughout the month, which can sometimes slow things down or speed things up depending where, where we are in our cycle with it or how much of it our body is producing at a certain age. Um, so estrogen can be a little bit more problematic. So I do find that women need to fast a little bit more on average to lose weight than men. And with women, weight loss is a little bit slower at the start and then really starts to pick up 
I think because women have more hormones, uh, more problematic hormones than men, and we follow sort of the standard North American diet or the high-carb, high high-processed food diet, we have more things that we need to fix than men do at the start. And I think that's the reason for our slower progress is that we just have to regulate a little bit more than men do in terms of estrogen and insulin um, as we get started. And then we start to see more accelerated weight loss before things level off. So women start off slow, then we see this big acceleration, and then we see everything sort of stabilize. And with men, we see a big acceleration, and then we see things start to stabilize where they're losing, you know, one to two pounds consistently every week. And at the but men at the start, they'll lose all kinds of weight within the first few weeks, and then they'll start to see consistent weight loss. Women, sometimes we see like almost nothing for like a month. And then all of a sudden they're dropping weight like crazy, and then we see stable weight loss. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> when men and women are different, but I also like to think that everyone can fast. You simply have to kind of change your approach a little bit and uh, you can still make it work. But Absolutely. Yeah. Fasting's great for women uh, for so many reasons. Um, I just tell them just be a little bit more patient. If weight loss is your goal at the start, just buy yourself a month of time and you will make just the same progress as your husband or your friend or your son or anyone else doing fasting with you. Right. Shoot the fast like uh, in different lengths. Uh, shoot the fast uh, like having shoulder fast than men. Uh, so they should fast a little bit longer than men. Okay. So women typically um, who are looking to treat metabolic syndrome or are looking to lose weight should be doing at least 36 or 42 hours of fasting intermittently or a combination of both. Men um, who are uh, not very severe diabetics but still have some metabolic syndrome and looking to lose weight, they do very well in a 24-hour 24 or 36 hour fasting regimen. Rarely do they need to fast longer. Usually when we do recommend extended fast, it is to women just because it is a little bit more stubborn. And do there are men too who are just completely hormonally um, imbalanced and have very, very severe diabetes. And we will recommend extended fasting just to help break some of the more severe barriers in terms of uh, reversing insulin resistance. Um, but uh, what women typically 36, 42 hours is a good fasting regimen for them. Yeah. What kind of like uh, dietary changes should people make when uh, they adopt more fasting? So we really encourage on days when they do eat just not to snack. That's the first thing. Just cut out snacking. But when people are in the stage where they are ready to start changing their foods, um, really cut out all of the processed and refined carbs as much as possible. So we encourage our patients to really shop on the outskirts of the supermarket and not down the aisles. My favorite supermarket in Toronto has two aisles and that's it. It's all produce and fish and uh, meat and poultry and really great stuff. Uh, dairy. So shopping around the outside, try to stay away from stuff and bags and boxes and uh, tins and that you don't know what's in it. So try to eat more natural foods. And then we really encourage our patients to cut back on fruit. And if they're diabetic, just cut it out for a period of time altogether, except for some berries if they really need something. But fructose is really problematic. It's definitely the most problematic of uh, all of sort of the, the natural sugars. Right. Um, so we have people cut back on those and then we'll start to see how they do, and then slowly try to remove the starches or reduce the starches and grains from their diet. So we, we encourage patients to eat a lot of fibrous, non-starchy vegetables, lots of avocados and olives in terms of fruits uh, intake, berries occasionally if they need something, um, meat, poultry, fish, but from good quality sources, making sure, of course, your fish and seafood is, is wild and from cold waters and um, making sure that your meat is, you know, as grass-fed as possible, but you can get. And then we encourage our patients to cook that the meat and cook those vegetables and consume even things like avocados without additional fat. So olive oil, avocado oil, uh, cooking with coconut oil, butter, beef tallow, bacon fat, duck fat, uh, utilizing a lot of these mm. good quality natural fats. Mm. Yeah, it's good. So you're not prescribing like any specific macronutrient ratios. Uh, you're simply just telling like, yeah, eat, eat those uh, whole foods, but you kind of stay more on the lower carb side. Yes. 
I find the most problematic foods are nuts. People mm. either have a lot of self-control or they don't. And when you have insulin resistance, you're just always hungry. And once that starts to improve, then you actually start to experience satiation. So nuts, when you tell someone they're a healthy fat, which they are, um, if they've got you know a, a kilo bag of almonds kicking around and they're hungry at two o'clock in the afternoon and four o'clock in the afternoon, they'll grab a handful of nuts and think that's very good for them. But it, it is good fat and it is protein, but when you have insulin resistance, you need to be a little bit more mindful of your protein intake. And it is still carbohydrates too. So mm. nuts are one of the more finicky things that I encourage people who have metabolic syndrome or are looking to lose weight to utilize as garnishes. Um, so if they can't have, if they don't have that self-control or don't experience that degree of satiation, just buy very little if they're going to buy any at all. And once they become, you know, healthy, a great body composition, uh, they've gotten control of their health again, then they can have them in their house a little bit more liberally. Definitely a handful of nuts is not going to be detrimental to them or their progress at that point. Yeah, like also for people who are doing, who are trying to lose weight, then uh, I wouldn't myself recommend having them nuts either because yeah, it's, <laughs> they're quite easy to overconsume and uh, they don't like satiate you as much as like a real salad or some steak or something. Very much so, yes. Yeah. Uh, what about, you mentioned that uh, people who have diabetes, they, sh they shouldn't like overdo the protein either. So is that like a real concern that uh, the protein will raise blood sugar and uh, insulin? We see it all the time. I know I, even I, I can't share too many specific patient tales, but my, myself, I'm very petite. I'm five feet tall. And when I was diabetic, if I ate more than six or eight ounces of steak, I would get kicked out of ketosis and I see a, a severe elevation in my blood sugar that would take time to come down. Mm. Now that I'm a very insulin sensitive, healthy woman, I can eat 16 ounces of steak, stay in ketosis and have amazing blood sugar levels. Um, so we do see this with a lot of our patients with really impaired uh, glucose metabolism, really serious insulin resistance. They just don't seem overall to do that well on protein. Often they'll come in and say, we don't, we didn't get it. We ate this big steak for, for dinner and we ate it at five o'clock. So why was our 8 a.m. you know, blood sugar the next day still so high? And when we cut back the protein intake for these guys, it makes a huge difference. But, you know, several months down the road when they're more insulin sensitive, they can enjoy that big steak at five o'clock and see improved morning numbers and even before bed numbers that night. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it is. Like if you are, you know, insulin resistant, then kind of all the metabolic machinery is, is wrecked and uh, doesn't work properly, which is quite unfortunate. But you can, like the, the best part is with time, with patience, with dedication um, and consistency, you can totally get there. Sure. So I will tell everybody who's listening, every day that I fasted and every day that I um, resisted eating French fries, uh, I, I'm grateful for that. Every time I eat a big steak and I have amazing numbers, it was all worth it yeah. to enjoy that big fatty steak. So push through, there is a, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, like being healthy and having like normal biomarkers is much more, much more fulfilling in the end than having that short, short uh, spike of dopamine and short spike of uh, like uh, enjoyment from eating those French fries. Much, much so. So yeah. the steak's just as enjoyable and you'll get there and you'll be able to enjoy it. I know a lot of people, we were talking about this at the gym this morning. Uh, one of my uh, trainers, uh, partners is doing keto but she's got quite a bit of insulin uh, resistance right now. So she's very limited. And I, he was, I was talking to him and I said, no, but as she heals, she can eat more of these things. She's doing keto for epilepsy. Um, so, but she, you can like fasting and eating keto over time. Like she's not going to kick herself out of ketosis by eating a little bit of steak. She's not going to screw up her system by having a couple of extra macadamia nuts uh, on the side of her lunch. So it just, it just takes time. And if you keep up with it, you can have quite a, an amazing life full of a variety of foods and really enjoy until satiation um, in the future. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Are there any, like any negative side effects from fasting that people should kind of watch out for or to learn how to prevent? 
I think it's just really important to stay well hydrated. Um, like fasting, like everything else, does have its risk of side effects. The most common ones we see are diarrhea, headaches, dizziness, and gout, actually. Um, and we only really see gout in people who have a history of hyperuricemia or uh, very high uric acid levels. For people that don't, we do see the uric acid levels go up, but we never really see it cause gout. Um, but it's still something to be mindful of. Those are the things we see the most. Um, in terms of gout, if a patient has a history of gout, we do encourage them to take their gout medications, but then we recommend some holistic things just to help aid as a crutch too, like lime juice, uh, adding a little bit of lime juice to water. Hmm. Now that's not an ideal fast, but it can help prevent against a gout attack till the body's adapted. Hmm. We find gout's only an issue for like the first four to six weeks that a person fasts, and then after that, the uric acid levels come down naturally. So we think it has a lot to do with people that are just going into a state of ketosis. We don't know why 100%, but getting into the state of ketosis, because not just in fasting, we see that in a ketogenic diet as well. Um, headaches, dizziness, like sort of things related to the keto flu, diarrhea, they tend to be remedied with just uh, adequate hydration. The diarrhea is just really short term. Um, the problem is just feeling depleted. So just being hydrated. It's why we encourage people when they're new to fasting to drink things like bone broth and sugar-free pickle juice, mm. um, just to help your body sort of adapt. And then once your body has adapted to being in a state of ketosis, so fat burning mode while fasting, then to cut out the other stuff. But of course, if you get too dehydrated, it becomes problematic. There are certain situations where we've never seen it, but refeeding syndrome, has been a, a, an issue for some people. You've got Angus Barbieri who did 380 some odd days of fasting and never had refeeding syndrome. Mm. And then, oh, I forget this guy's name. He uh, did a long fast and he was suspended in a box and he was really lazy and didn't move around. And he had issues with refeeding syndrome. So we encourage our patients all to be active during their fast, just keeping up with their day-to-day -day activities. Don't lay in bed like you're suffering from the flu when you're fasting because that can become problematic and put you at risk for refitting syndrome. And then just always making sure you're a suitable candidate to start with, that you don't, all your minerals and electrolytes are okay going into a fast or making sure you, if, if they're not bringing them up to a level where they're okay through diet or supplementation if necessary prior to starting a fast. I find this issue a lot with um, very strict vegetarians or vegans. They tend to have a lot of vitamin deficiencies uh, or vitamin B deficiencies. Sorry, not all vitamin <laughs> deficiencies, but vitamin B deficiencies. And we find if they fast, they don't really lose weight. And we think their bodies are just under so much stress as it is from the deficiency that now when you do fast, you do produce some cortisol. And it's just enough to really slow everything down. So we'll check their levels um, and supplement accordingly or alter their diet if we can in those cases. And then once their levels are up to normal, then we start fasting. And so I think it's just being very smart about going into the fasting, making sure you're well aware of what's going in, going on in your body to prevent a lot of uh, these negative side effects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Like it's not, it may sound that, you know, yeah, you just st stop eating and you just fast, but there is some some you know minor adjustments you have to like keep in mind and uh, simple learn about it a little bit. Yes, yeah. And and you're writing a book about it as well, as I heard. We're writing a lot of books right now. Um, we we have a a book coming out uh, about women in fasting. That so I'm writing that based on my clinical experience, what trends we see, and possibly like, why perhaps we're seeing these trends with women. Um, the thing is a really hot topic. A lot of women are terrified to fast. And I've fasted thousands of women, I myself, and I fast, and I've only seen incredible things happen with women. Um, so it seems silly that people say women shouldn't fast. Uh, everybody can, uh, most people can fast, um, except very bizarre extreme circumstances. Would it not be wise for someone to fast or eat in time-restricted eating patterns. Um, so um, a book sort of sharing the journey of women at different stages in their life. Um, Jason and I are writing a very 
practical guide to fasting, um, sort of an all-encompassing book of you know what our program recommends. And then we're writing a book with our friend Eve Mayer on um, the emotional aspects uh, behind everything that goes through when you're a carbohydrate addict. I can't tell you how many people have said to me uh, in privacy or in secrecy, you know, we actually wish we were alcoholics rather than uh, carboholics because it would be easier. Because if you're an alcoholic, your friends and family don't try to pour booze down your throat. But when you're a carboholic, your friends and family want you to eat cake and eat pasta. And, um, so these are things that people would always tell us in privacy. And not too many people are out there saying it very boldly. And Eve's had a really incredible personal journey. So she's sharing, I think she's done it all. She's had three bariatric surgeries. It's pretty wild. Um, the lengths she's gone to and the money she spent to lose weight and all of the emotional trauma that she's had along the way. Um, so we're, you know, we're breaking down her emotional experiences and trying to explain the science behind it and you know, why she, why it wasn't working and what, you know, uh, what was like, going on hormonally that's making her feel this way too. And what's going on that's making, uh, this is such a difficult journey for her and the advice that was given and why it was so bad. So that's something that we're working on as well. So there's lots of writing going on this yeah. year over at IDEA. Mm. Yeah, it's quite funny that uh, being a carboholic is so like one of those things that people don't uh, think is an issue. Like people simply say, yeah, why, 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 why won't you eat the cake? And they literally give it to you. So it's, it's somewhat of a like, um, not considered an addiction in in society whereas in reality it has like much more much more dangerous effects than uh, just any other types of uh, addictions very much so yeah. i have this uh, patient um she's an older woman and uh, she i we were at a town or for work and it was this summer and i was in the uk and in jordan and when I got back, I, when I saw her in clinic, she said, Megan, I had to go to the hospital while you were gone. And I asked her why. And she said, well, I was home. And, you know, I, I understand I'm not supposed to eat sugar now after talking to you and talking to Dr. Fun. And I wasn't hungry, but I had this really, really maddening craving for sugar. It was so consuming and I couldn't make it go away no matter what I did. And so she said, I, I thought maybe I have an addiction. So I went to the emergency room because someone shouldn't have thoughts like this. Like someone, you know, should be able to get past these thoughts of wanting to have sugar. And especially when I'm not hungry. If I was hungry, then maybe I'd understand. So she went to the emergency room and she's like, I, this is what's going on. And I'm, I'm very worried about my mental state right now. So she was she was an older lady and you know it's uh she was scared and she's alone she's widowed and they told her sugar addiction is no no such thing and the doctor said if you're craving sugar then you should probably eat it because obviously your body's telling you that you need sugar and she said but i'm not hungry doctor i actually feel very full and my blood sugar levels are high so my body obviously has lots of sugar in it <laughs> and he said don't don't worry go home pick yourself up a piece of cake on the way. That was his advice. And I'm just wow. like, oh my gosh, like this really? is the doctor telling a diabetic patient to go get cake. <laughs> um, pretty wild stuff uh, in terms of understanding, you know, just what a hold sugar has on us. Yeah, it's crazy, yeah. And uh, there's a lot of work to be done in terms of like uh, changing, <laughs> changing the paradigm. <laughs> <laughs> lots and lots of work. <laughs> right. uh, before I ask my last question, uh, where can people learn more about you and your work? Yes, uh, so you can uh, check out everything uh, Jason and I are doing on the IDM program website. So it's www.idmprogram.com. Uh, we've got blog posts, we've got all kinds of stuff up there, great free resources, and there's some paid ones too. And there's links to all of the books if you wanted to check them out up on their website under the resource section. Nice, nice, yeah. Uh, my last question is, uh, What's this one piece of advice or a habit you wish you adopted sooner that improved your body and your mind? I think snacking is the biggest thing. If I could get everybody to stop snacking and to mm. stop eating late at night and train people to eat um, proper meals again. If people had to eat lunch and then had to wait four or five hours till they ate dinner time and they were eating carbs too, they'd feel hungry and they'd stop eating those foods. They'd start finding foods that satiated them if they weren't allowed to snack. And then, so I think snacking is sort of the key to adults. If you can't snack, 
then you're going to just eat your meals. And then at meal times, you're going to start making better choices to prevent yourself from wanting to snack. And snacking is just so detrimental too, because I work with so many patients who are keto and they do like 16 or 18 hours of fasting, but they're still suffering from inability to lose weight and metabolic damage. And it's not that they need to eat less or less often. It's just really getting rid of the snacking because they'll fast for 16 hours and then they'll eat for like eight hours straight. They'll have a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit here. And we've actually done studies with our uh, dialysis patients where we have them eat the exact same foods in the exact same quantities but in two periods within that eight hour window, rather than just grazing and trickling through that entire list of foods over eight hours. And they lose all kinds of weight and we see a great improvement in their blood sugar levels. So even just snacking, and even in patients who still eat pretty terribly, cutting out snacking makes a huge improvement. Mm. I, I have one woman and she would just graze on junk food all day. Now we can find it, like I can't get her to change her diet, but she's lost 50 pounds, she's off of her insulin, her A1C's improved, she's still on some diabetic meds, but I mean, she's her quality of life is so much better mm. than what it was before. It's certainly not ideal um, by any means, and does it, but she is a lot healthier individual just from that. So I, I really think snacking is, uh, snacking's the biggest thing you know, for me to get started. So if you're out there and you're scared about fasting or scared about changing your diet, just cut out snacking. Don't do anything overly dramatic and just see the benefits that you get from that alone. Mm, yeah, it is. <laughs> it's, it's snacking is another one of those things that's really, really common, not just being a carboholic. <laughs> yes. Right. Well, thanks for coming to the podcast, Megan, and I'm looking forward to your new books and uh, I wish you all luck with your uh, practice. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks for having me today. And happy fasting to anyone who's <laughs> listening. Yeah, thanks. Bye. <laughs> All right, that's it for this episode of the Body, Mind, Empowerment podcast. If you want to support us, then I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a review on iTunes and the other social media platforms. You can now order my new book, Metabolic Autophagy, that covers a lot of the same topics that we talked in here. It's a collection of certain lifestyle habits and practices that prioritize longevity as well as performance. To support this podcast, you can also become a Patreon and get exclusive video lectures from my biohacking bootcamp that covers circadian rhythms, intermittent fasting, autophagy, resistance training, biofeedback, and many more. But other than that, my name is Seem. Stay tuned for the next episode. Stay empowered.